Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, Stars, Lampstands, and Unusual Tomorrows. In this series, based on the book of Revelation, we look at some very pointed messages from Jesus. Today, our guest pastor, Paul Bradakis, guides us as we look at the message to the church at Thyatira and how they compromised. Paul helps us see in the messages from Revelation the commendation or condemnation and how we ourselves ought to respond to those messages. Good morning, everyone. Hey, it is such a great pleasure to be back here once again, Bay Hills Community Church. Uh, This is my third or fourth time, I believe, that I've been here, and I see a lot of familiar faces, and that's always great, and I see a lot of new faces, and that's even greater because it shows that you guys are a growing church And I'm very delighted by that. I'm sure God is delighted by that as well. So again, thank you so much for uh, being here this morning. And uh, some of you have probably heard me say this before. I think I I might have shared this story the first time I came here. But by way of history, for those of you who are newer, I wanted to mention to you that uh, Dave and Sandy, uh, they've been very, very good friends uh, to me for 20 years now. And the way we met was we used to all attend a small church in Chicago. And when Dave and Sandy came there, they found this anemic, dying young adults group that was barely hanging on for dear life. And they came in and they added a breath of fresh air and enthusiasm. And they took us to levels that we never thought we could ascend to. They put new wind in our sails. It was a time, it was probably one of the greatest times of my life. I'll never forget what we were able to do together. And we prayed with Dave and Sandy the entire time that God would lead them as Dave was candidating with many, many churches throughout the country and had a lot of offers on the table. And we were praying that God would lead them to just the right church. And I still remember very clearly the day they came to us and they said that they felt called to go and pastor a church in El Sobrante, California. And our first, um, uh, the first words that came out of our mind is, uh, where the heck is El Sobrante, California? <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, they were convinced that this was the one. And so I remember when we, we laid hands on them and we prayed over them and, and we prayed that one day God would do an amazing work through their ministry and through the church. And what's amazing is, let me just see a show of hands. How many of you have, uh, have come into the ministry here at Bay Hills just in the last three years? Just raise your hands. Wow, that's amazing. Because you know what we were doing 20 years ago? We were praying that one day you would come. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And so I still remember the day that they were leaving when I sort of pulled Dave off to the side and I said, Dave, I want you to, I want you to know something from my heart. I want you to know that there is nothing I wouldn't do for you. And he looked at me and he said, you know, kind of choked up. He said, Paul, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. And so for 20 years... We've done absolutely nothing for each other. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he calls me out of the blue a couple of months ago. He goes, Paul, I got a question for you. You still believe in free speech, right? I said, what kind of a question is that? Of course I believe in free speech. He goes, good. Would you come to my church and give one? <laughs> so, yeah, last of the big time spenders. So, I am thrilled to be with you once again. And, uh, you know, we've been looking at uh, the seven churches of Revelation. 
for the past few weeks, and you've heard from both Dave and from Dave's dad, Jim, uh, and they've, they've added great insights about the churches of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, the church of Pergamum. You've heard about God's commendations and his warnings to those key churches. You've seen both his blessings and his curses on those churches. And I hope the whole time you've been asking yourselves, what does this mean for Bay Hills Community Church? What does this mean about our little community? What would God's message be to us? Would it be one of commendation or condemnation? Will we be found as a church that delights the heart of God or breaks it? And so I hope you've got those filters on this morning as we take a look at the fourth of the seven churches of Revelation that God sent messages to. Now, if you have your Bibles with with you, please open them up to the text in uh, Revelation chapter 2, I believe it's verse 18, where it says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to those who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as always, it's always good to really fully comprehend, fully understand, fully flesh out the text to have historical context. So let's take a look, a brief look, at what Thyatira is really all about as a city, as a people. And the first thing we know about them is that they were a city that had a tremendous amount of trade guilds. Okay, there were potters, weavers, dyers, bronze workers, and so on. And in order to work in one of these fields, you had to join what they called a trade guild. Very similar to today, where in some industries you have to join a trade union, right? It was like a union. Now... The caveat, though, here is that most of these guilds had feasts, quite often, that were held in pagan temples. They were associated, these feasts were associated with things like idolatry and even sacrifices to foreign gods. There was a lot of revelry happening, a lot of sexual promiscuity happening at these gatherings. And so you can imagine, then, the dilemma that Christ followers had in this city as they were trying to make a living. Because their participation in these events would mean that they would be doing something that's dishonoring to Christ. But if they didn't participate in these guilds, they'd be standing on the unemployment line. 
It was economic suicide. And so many of them had to compromise their beliefs just to make a living. And so we get a foreshadowing of the beef that God has with this church because it is a church that is marred in compromise. Now, I know last week when Dave was talking to you guys about the church in Pergamum, he was also talking about this thing that we call compromise. And it's no mistake that we're going to sort of carry out that same theme in the message today. Now, we also know that of all the seven churches that received a letter from God, Thyatira's letter, the one that we just read, is the longest, even though from an influence standpoint, it was the least important of all these churches. Now, going back to the text, I want you all to take a look at how God addresses the church in the first half of the letter. He starts out with a reminder that he has eyes that are like blazing fire and feet that are like burnished bronze. Now, that allusion to the eyes, that allusion to the eyes is God simply letting them know that he's watching them very carefully. It's kind of like the Robert De Niro character, Jack, in the movie Meet the Parents. Do you remember when he, he kept telling his future son-in-law, Greg, that he's watching him? He's like, I'm watching you, watching you. And every time they'd kind of sneak a gaze at each other, he'd be like, do you remember that? You guys seen that? It's kind of like God doing that. He's reminding them. The blazing eyes are a reminder that God's gaze is hallowed and cleansing. And it can see through all forms of pretense and deceptiveness. And the feet of bronze, those hearken back to imagery that's found in the book of Daniel. And it might have been used as a point of identification since so many of the people in Thyatira worked in the bronze and iron trades. So they understood what that was all about. So God, he starts out this letter by listing their notable traits. He praises them for the things that they've been doing that give him great, great pleasure. He says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your your service, your perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you were at first. Did you catch those four? Let's take a look at those. He says that they were, number one, a loving church. Secondly, they were a serving church. Third, they were a faithful church. And fourth, They were a growing church. It feels good, doesn't it? When someone who's evaluating you starts out by saying really positive things about you. When they laud the things that you've been doing right. Do you ever wonder what God might say to Bay Hills Community Church if he were standing here today? If he was sort of giving you your performance review? I have a feeling just based on what I know of the history of your church, just based on where you guys are going as a church, I have a feeling that if he came down and he spoke words to you today based on these four criteria that he, that he used to address the church in Thyatira, I believe he'd probably say something like this. He'd say, Bay Hills, Bay Hills, you are a loving church. You are a loving church. I have watched how you cared for one another and how you tend to one another's needs. I've seen you responding to each other's situations over and over, and I've seen the way you've reached out to your community. You are a loving church. And then I think he'd say, Bay Hills, you are a serving church. You're a serving church. I have seen how more than 60% of, of your regular members have been involved in service opportunities over just the last couple of years. 
You are a serving church. Way to go. Way to go. I think he'd also say, Bay Hills, you are a faithful church. You're a faithful church. Your financial giving to my kingdom has gone up every single year for the last four years. And you have done this all in one of the worst economic climates in a generation. I am so proud of who you're becoming in this area. You are a faithful church. And I think he'd say, Bay Hills, you are a growing church. In an era where churches are on the decline all over the nation and every day sees the boarding up of churches over and over, you have had a 33% growth over just the last five years. You have no idea how much joy that brings to my heart. Bay Hills, you are a growing church. Now, if God were here, based on these statistics, I really believe that the conversation would start that way. And you would all be feeling very, very good, as you should, because you accomplished all this in loving community, and that delights the heart of God. To feel the pleasure of God is an incredible rush, isn't it? Have you ever been in a zone where you felt God's pleasure? And there's nothing like it, right? Remember how you felt when you were a kid and your mom and dad would praise you for something? Remember how you felt like you could walk on air afterwards? The approval of a parent is vital to our psyche when we're growing up, just as the approval of our Heavenly Father fills us up with encouragement and hope. So the church of Thyatira is feeling really, really good right about now as these words from God are filling their ears. They're probably high-fiving each other. They're doing the happy dance. You know, this deal here. Don't make me bust a move here, really. You don't want to see it. You know what I'm talking about. But then, then comes the word, the dreaded word that nobody ever wants to hear. Nevertheless, nevertheless, you're sitting across from your boss at your annual performance review. Your boss opens up by saying something like, you have had a very, very good year. Your sales numbers are up. Your clients are all very happy. Your co-workers respect you. You come in early. You stay late. You outperform all your other peers. And you know your job better than anyone else. And then he pauses. Nevertheless, and then every muscle in your body tightens up and your heart just stops. Man gets on one knee in front of his girlfriend. He's got a ring in his hand, asks her to be his wife. The woman looks down, tears flooding down her face, coming down her cheeks. She looks at him and says, oh, John, you are such a great guy. I love the way you pay attention to me. I love the way we have lots of fun when we get together. I love the way you're so gentle and respectful of me. I love the way you open the car door for me. And I really do love you. Nevertheless, and there's just this moment of dread, isn't there? This moment of dread that happens because we all know what's coming next. Because the word nevertheless is a transitional word, right? It's a word that means Whatever I just said, I'm about to turn the thought 180 degrees the other way, right? So, 
the church of Thyatira, they just hear that dreaded word and now they brace themselves. And God says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And so on and so on and so on. And God brings all these curses upon them. Now, friends, this is a loaded charge. So, let's unpack it together and let's take a look at what he's really saying. Now, the first thing you need to know is that God is most likely using familiar imagery to get his point across. There is most likely not actually a physical woman by the name of Jezebel in this church. What is happening instead is it's a reference to one of the most detestable women in the history of the world. It is a woman who existed 800 years prior to these words being written. She was the wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament. And since she wore the pants in the family, she had led all of Israel into idolatry and into unfaithfulness. We find out that she was also a big-time seductress, a plotter of evil, and even a murderess. Now, this woman was so evil that even Elijah who was one of God's greatest prophets, fled for his life like a little sissy when he found out that Jezebel was after him. In fact, he was so scared that he actually went to God and said, God, I just want you to kill me. I just want you to end my life rather than face the wrath of Jezebel. This is the same guy who called down fire from heaven and wiped out 850 false prophets of the land just prior to that. This is the same guy who had the power to shut the heavens from raining for three and a half years. This is the same guy who raised the dead son of a widow. This is the same guy who was able to part the Jordan River. And by the way, that thing with the calling down fire from heaven, he did that three different times. Man, what I wouldn't give for that kind of superpower. I, I promise you, if I could do just that, the calling down fire from heaven, I wouldn't be afraid of anybody, let alone some woman, some evil woman coming in my way. I'd be just like, hey, bring it, sister. Come on. Ready? Come on. Bring it. You know? And yet, I think, imagine... How wicked she must have been to freak out even a superhero prophet like Elijah. So the church of Thyatira, there was someone in that church who was equally wicked, just like Jezebel, and was so deceptive. And so when God calls her Jezebel, it's like calling someone a Benedict Arnold, or it's like calling someone who's really smart in Einstein. You, you get the idea, right? And so this person probably had a lot of influence and was leading people astray. She was causing them to compromise their faith. On one hand, they wanted to be faithful to God and to the church. But on the other hand, they were not strong enough in their faith to entrust, to, to entrust themselves entirely into God's word. And so they were easily swayed by her teaching. And in doing so, they fell into the slippery slope that we call compromise. They compromised their faith. They compromised their beliefs. They compromised their integrity. The passage tells us 
that she misled them into sexual immorality and idolatry. Now, you might be tempted to ask, how can this possibly happen? I mean, if these people really loved God and these people were really into his word, how could they allow themselves to be taken so adrift by any one person? And the question I would ask is, is it really that different today? Have we not seen example after example after example through history of entire congregations, indeed of entire nations being misled by one person? Do we not sometimes rationalize away what we know best by making small compromises along the way? I'm unhappy in this marriage, but God doesn't want me to be unhappy. He says he came to give me life in its full abundance. I'm not experiencing abundance right now. God wants me to be happy. Therefore, it must be okay for me to bail out of this marriage because it's not providing me with the full abundance that God promised me of happiness. So that small rationalization, that small compromise, has suddenly skewed Scripture in the direction of our flesh. And now we are way off course. We are entirely adrift. Girl grows up in the church loving God and loving His Word. And she becomes smitten with a guy who is not a believer. She dates him anyway with the rationalization that it is not God's intention that anyone should perish. So she believes that since she cares for him so much, she must be God's chosen vessel to lead him to Christ. And of course, the only way to get that done is to enter into an emotional relationship with him. And time goes by and the relationship grows. And maybe they get married. But he never really comes around. And so now what started as stress cracks in the relationship turn into huge, huge chasms because of an initial rationalization that led to a monstrous compromise. Here's the thing with rationalization and with compromise. It almost always starts out with the perception that something evil can actually be good. That even though it's something that I know I probably should not be doing, if I go ahead and do it anyway, maybe I can change the outcome and make it a good outcome. And once you go down that road, you can infect a church, you can infect a neighborhood, you can infect an entire nation. In 1969, there was a girl named Norma found out she was pregnant with her third child. And she knew that she couldn't care for it. God wouldn't want me to bring an innocent child into the world just to watch it starve and live a horrible life, right? That's not God's plan, she rationalized. So she sought an abortion in Dallas, but it was illegal in that city. So she was not happy about that. She went and found a lawyer. The lawyer convinced her that she is correct, that she should have the right to terminate that anytime she wants and agree to help her kind of fight it. After all, God wouldn't want her to carry on with this unwanted pregnancy, right? That can't be in God's will. And so this one tiny, tiny rationalization, this one tiny, seemingly insignificant compromise caused a spark 
that became a raging inferno. And it was on this day, today, January 22nd, 1973, exactly 39 years ago, that Roe versus Wade changed the facade and the landscape of our nation forever. Since that date, it's estimated that around 60 million abortions have happened just in this country, just in this country. Now, we hear a big number about that, and sometimes we have a hard time getting our heads around it. So I want to help you understand what we're really talking about, the magnitude of that. That would be like an atomic bomb going off today that would completely wipe out the entire population, every man, woman, and child in the state of California, in the state of Wyoming, in the state of Vermont, the state of North Dakota, the state of South Dakota, the state of Delaware, the state of Montana, the state of Rhode Island, the state of New Hampshire, the state of Maine, the state of Hawaii, the state of Idaho, the state of Nebraska, the state of West Virginia, the state of New Mexico, the state of Nevada, the state of Utah, and all of Washington, D.C. Can you even imagine? Can you imagine? Are we still suffering the consequences of that one rationalization? That one compromise today? You bet we are. You bet we are. And not just in the ways that you would think. Not just at the surface level of, of, you know, of the aborted babies. Not just at that level. But there are some things that you might not have thought through about other ways that it's affecting us today. And one of these ways is a way that has affected every single person in this room and continues to do so today. And that is our economy. Now you're probably thinking, what in the world does that have to do with our economy? Follow the line of thought here. Uh, just recently, Forbes magazine hired some very smart people to put together some uh, calculations, and they figured out that over the lifetime, over a lifetime of work, an average American will have contributed $355,000 to the federal government in taxes. So every one of you throughout your lifetime will have contributed at least that amount of money at an average into the U.S. government. Now, if you multiply that number by an additional 60 million taxpayers, you come to a staggering figure of more than $21 trillion coming into the system. Instead, today, we are a nation of waning uh, economic influence throughout the world because we find ourselves in more than $15 trillion in debt. Now carry this through. Because if those additional 60 million souls would have been allowed the right to live and to contribute into the system, it would have closed that gap and even put us over by more than $5 trillion into surplus. Staggering, isn't it? I'm so glad that Bob and Pam did not compromise their faith, did not compromise their beliefs. They were missionaries in the Philippines. And they were so, so very blessed and excited when they found out they were pregnant. But complications soon arose, and the doctors very, very strongly encouraged her to terminate the pregnancy. But she and Bob adamantly refused because of their faith in God, and they trusted in His ultimate provision for this child. 
But Pam continued to get worse, and it got really bad. And the doctors went back to her for a second round, and they pleaded with her, said, you must terminate this, if for no other reason, for the sake of your own life, because this will cost you your life. And how easy it would have been then for Bob and Pam to say, you know what? Look, God didn't bring us out here to allow us to die. He called us out here to reach the Filipino people. We're supposed to be here. He sent us out into this mission field. He wants us to be healthy and live productive lives so that we can do the work to which he has called us. Maybe we should just listen to the doctors. But instead, they held fast to God's word and to his promises. And their son, Tim, was born healthy on August 14, 1987. Today, he's six foot three, weighs 235 pounds, and he has captured the attention and the heart of our nation. And I would bet you anything that Bob and Pam Tebow are very glad that they did not compromise their faith and compromise the things that God had put in their hearts. They did not rationalize. I'm glad that British Olympic athlete Eric Little didn't compromise his faith when he was forced to run in an Olympic event on the Lord's Day. And he couldn't compromise his convictions. His country had put enormous pressure on him to violate those convictions. By refusing to run, he could have cost his country a sure Olympic gold medal. But he stood firm and convinced the Olympic Committee to let him run in a different event on a different day. And you know what? He did win the gold medal anyway. And... His story was translated into cinema, and that story won the Oscar in a movie called Chariots of Fire, and it has touched millions of people throughout the world. I'm glad Truett Cathy didn't compromise his convictions when he founded his company, Chick-fil-A. You see, he believed that the store should be closed on Sundays because Sunday should be a day where people spend with their families and with their God. He believed in the Sabbath. But every sharp business mind in the country told him he would be committing economic suicide by doing that and allowing his competitors to have a 52-day advantage over him every year and crush him. But he stuck to his belief. And today, even with that 52-day handicap, Chick-fil-A is so far ahead of their competitors, they can't even see them in the rearview mirror anymore. And I am so glad that Daniel did not compromise his faith, did not compromise his beliefs. I'm so glad that he didn't eat the food at the king's table because it conflicted with his beliefs. He held strong. And because he didn't compromise in this one small area, he had a major, major breakthrough in a larger area of his life. Now, as it turns out, during this 21-day fast... God had taught him something about perseverance. Taught him something about not compromising. It's kind of ironic that I'm talking about that today because um, I have just come to the end of a 21-day fast myself. I started it on January 1st, and it ended at midnight last night. So to this day, I have not had, I have not had any real food this year. I can actually say that. And so the fossils have... Um, have 
invited me to their home after this service to go and have lunch, they have no idea what's coming. I am going to eat them out of house and home. But what you need to understand is along the way, there was so many times when I just wanted to compromise that. You know, my kid is eating a cupcake, and I'm thinking to myself, one small bite, come on. Am I really violating anything here? My wife is eating a juicy steak at Outback. I'm like, one bite, come on. But you know what? I don't always get it right, but this time I did. And I'm so glad that I didn't compromise that. And I, like Daniel, am looking forward to, you know, a big breakthrough in my life, spiritually and and, and in all other areas. Friends, how powerful, how powerful and manifold is God's grace and blessing when his people don't compromise their convictions. And he offers harsh, harsh words to those who followed the Jezebel in the church of Thyatira, even cursing her descendants and all of those who would follow in her teachings. But then, here comes the good news. Look at the blessings mentioned in verse 26. He says, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Wow! Did you know that in Revelation 20, that the Bible tells us that one day we will reign with him? Now, most people have erroneously believed that that means we get to hang out with him, that we get to be in his presence. No, 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 no. The word reign has only one definition. Look it up in the dictionary. only has one definition. It means to rule and to govern over. Friends, one day we will govern over. We will rule over nations. Do you understand that? How amazing. And then in verse 28... He promises us the greatest gift of all, that he is going to give us the morning star. Earlier in the chapter, earlier in Revelation, he tells us that Jesus is the bright morning star. God is telling us here that if we are faithful to the end, our ultimate prize is we get Jesus. We get Jesus. The greatest prize for our faithfulness is eternity forever with the one who saved us and redeemed us and paid the price of our sins once and for all. Once and for all. So, this morning, brothers and sisters at Bay Hills Community Church, knowing what you know now about what God would most likely say to you in the way of admonition, I want, to ask, I want you to ask yourself this. Would he follow up all of your good qualities with the word, nevertheless? Despite all the good things that you guys are doing as a church, would he then chastise you for unfaithfulness in other areas? How are we doing on this? How are you doing in the area of compromise? What are you compromising in your life right now? What are you rationalizing just to give yourself license to do something that you want to do even though that still small voice is whispering inside of you that you know better. You know better. Some of you right now are rationalizing a relationship. It's a relationship that you're in. And you know in your heart of hearts that it's wrong, but you're rationalizing it. So in your mind, you're making it okay. But it's not okay. It is not okay. 
It needs to end. And it needs to end today. It needs to end today. It's not an accident that you're hearing this message this morning. And if the words that I'm saying are cutting you to the core inside right now, I promise you it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a particularly persuasive communicator. It is instead the sanctifying, convicting voice of the Holy Spirit tugging at you, calling at you, begging you to do the right thing because God loves you irrationally. Some of you are rationalizing and compromising something at work. You know in your heart of hearts that it's not honoring to God, but you continue to do it because you rationalize it away. Oh, this company has plenty of money. They could do without this. Maybe you're not paying your taxes. You rationalize it away by saying, God, the government's got enough money. I give them plenty of money. They can do without it. Really? You're really buying that? You believe that? That's what God wants from you, from your life? Come on, friends. Don't buy into that lie. Don't cheat your government. Don't cheat your employer. The Bible says everything we do, we do as unto the Lord. Your work should always be fully as unto the Lord. Whatever it is, friends, and only you know, stop it today. Stop. Make a vow that tomorrow you're going to go back to work and you're going to make it right. Friends, God is head over heels in love with every person at Bay Hills Community Church. He loves what you've done as a church. He loves what you're becoming, who you're becoming as a Christ follower. And when the history books are written, let's covenant together right now that we will never let it be said that when God addresses a letter to the church at Bay Hills, that it was one that was filled with condemnation. Let's covenant together right now that this church, this church will go down as one that pleased the very heart of God because its people refused to rationalize their beliefs and fall into the deadly spiral of compromise that has crippled so, so many churches throughout all of history. Let it be said instead that the people of Bay Hills Community Church were sold out, radically sold out, to being men and women of integrity who did the right things to bring glory to the God with whom they will forever reign. Please bow your head with me in closing prayer. And Father, that is our our heart this morning, that is our prayer this morning, that you would take this church and make it your mouthpiece in this community and that it would spread beyond this community into a needy nation and a needy world. God, you've given us all the tools. May this church never be found as one that compromises, that loses its first love, that falls into areas that have crippled other churches. But God, may we arise as a people fully sold out and dedicated to you because your kingdom is so, so worth it. That is the cry of our heart this morning. We love you, God. We bring all these things before you. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.
It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.